We are indeed studying the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to hand this out to you guys. And it's hard to know. Let's split this up. Here you go. Um, last week, we talked about, or I guess we began to talk about the context of the Ten Commandments. And I tried to make the point that we don't rightly understand the Ten Commandments when we cut off the prologue. Um, it says in the Bible that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then it goes into, you know, worship no other gods before me. And often um, when people think about the Ten Commandments, when people argue to put them, you know, posted on the courtroom wall or whatnot, they, they're always cutting off the prologue. And I talked last week, the first part, about why that's not so very helpful. And it had to do with this. The Ten Commandments have a context. And they have a context in a person. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Lord, your God. We talked about those words last week. This is the God who speaks to us. And if you don't know who he is, you won't rightly understand what he said. That's a pretty basic principle to understand in the Bible. If you don't know who he is, you will most likely misunderstand what he has to say. The second part of the context is the story. And you see it in the second half of the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so we're going to talk tonight about the context, which is the story of redemption. Why is it so important that we understand that God doesn't just speak bare commands? The Bible never, never gives bare commands without connecting it to who we are or to who God is or to something about what is true. And yet often, what goes by the name of Christianity in our churches and in our culture is, is, is merely bare commands. Or you know, the way it's more popularly talked about now, Christian values. Christian values without the story of redemption, well, I, I'm going to use polite language, are less than helpful. They distort, they distort the revelation of the Lord our God. And I will tell you this, man does not have the right to edit what God has said. And so we want to hear all that God has said. The, the, this passage, the Ten Commandments starts, these are the, all the words that the Lord spoke. And we want to start with what he said to understand what he's talking about. Um, I guess you know, the main point tonight is sort of part two of pay attention to the context of the Ten Commandments. Um, and particularly the context of the story. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Exodus chapter 20. And you see the verses there uh, at the top of the little outline. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's several verses we're going to look at tonight, and I printed them all out for you on the outline, so that'll be helpful. Um, not that I want you to slavishly follow the outline. I, I, who knows if I will. Um, but I put it on there um, to help you. All right, the context in the story. What is the story? Remember, this is Exodus in Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to make that point a little bit later, but this is not the book of Genesis. This is not the book of beginnings, which is what Genesis means, literally, beginnings. This is not the book of beginnings. There's been a lot of story that's led up to this point. And to really appreciate the context that the Ten Commandments have in a story, for us today, as modern Western people, we actually have to undo some of the, the thinking of our culture, which says that stories equal fiction. When I tell you that the Bible is a story, or that the Bible is a book of stories that make up one big story, part of you says, well, that's less true than if it was a book of scientific 
facts or propositions. As a matter of fact, people are always trying to turn the Bible into something that they think is more true or sort of distill the propositional truth out of the story. But the fact is, 80% of the Bible is historical narrative. It's history told as a story. And the other 20% is set in the context of a historical narrative, whether it's um, a letter or poetry or songs like the Psalms or Song of Solomon. All of it is connected to a story. It's not just abstract truth ripped out of a context in a story. And God likes it that way. God did it that way for a reason. He continually speaks in a context. He reminds us even at the beginning of the Ten Commandments here, which seems like one of, if there was any section in the Bible that it seems like you should just be able to rip it out and put it up on your wall and say, this is what I, I just memorized this and I'll know how to live, it would be this. And yet even this, God starts out saying, these Ten Commandments, really, literally in the Hebrew, these ten words, the ten words is what the Hebrew says, um, have a context. And I want you to know the context. It's a story. Now, um, there's a guy, N.T. Wright, I don't agree with everything he has to say, but um, he has hel helped me and other people understand that stories really are basic to how we understand the world and how we understand and have a view of the world. He says this, stories are often wrongly regarded as a poor person's substitute for the real thing, which is to be found either in some abstract truth or in statements about the bare facts. But, he goes on to say, stories are a basic constituent of human life. Stories are basic to shaping a worldview. And, you know, here, the interesting thing about being at a, at a university at this time in our history is you sort of have this tension, this conflict between some departments that really rightly want to celebrate story and the importance of story for shaping a worldview, and then you have other departments that are still holding on to stories or fictional, what really matters are bare facts, things that we can scientifically measure. And the fact is, you know, both of those are important. God has revealed himself in nature, in creation. We talked a little bit about that last week. But he's also revealed himself through a grand story. Again, a true story, but a story nonetheless. Um, and what I want to say is we can't downplay the importance of stories. There's a group of folks, um, Oxford Dons, professors in Oxford over in England, um, called themselves the Inklings, who are distressed about the character of the modern world and the way the world was changing and losing important ideas and understandings about the world and the way it works. And they got together and they would get together at a pub and they would discuss this sort of thing. And do you know what they decided to do to affect the culture that they saw slipping away around them? They didn't write heavy intellectual, theological, scientific tomes. Though they had the training and the expertise and the qualifications to do that, instead they wrote grand stories like the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia. It's been fascinating that these folks who were college professors, Oxford Dons, I think that's even more impressive. I don't know what a Don is, but it's, that's what they were. And, and yet they wrote stories. And they could have communicated Here's what's wrong with the modern world and the way it's losing this. They could have written essays, and some of them did. But when they wanted to shape their culture, they wrote stories. And it's very fascinating to think about um, how we think about how are we going to shape our culture. Um, so many of you are creative, artistic kind of people. Don't let anybody tell you 
that those gifts are not of value in shaping a worldview. They are. As a matter of fact, so many, not even of the right ideas, but the wrong ideas we believe in our culture are based on stories rather than facts. In other words, uh, one, one of my favorite is the idea that Columbus thought that the earth, earth was flat. Have you ever heard that story? Columbus did not think the earth was flat. Nobody thought the earth was flat. But, the, but those ideas get perpetuated to perpetuate a myth about the conflict between religion and science. All kinds of stories. I have a very fascinating book written by a social scientist, um, PhD from, from England, about some of the myths of the modern world. Rather than somebody telling you, do you know that the earliest supporters of Darwin, for instance, were clergymen, pastors? It was the Royal Scientific Society that blasted Darwin, not the church initially. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm saying that there are so many stories that sort of are told to help us believe certain myths in our, in our culture. Stories are really powerful in shaping a worldview whether they're true stories or not. And God knows that because that's what he made us for. As a matter of fact, if, you ever, uh, if you're into Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, you should track down an essay he wrote called On Fairy Stories. Anybody ever read that essay? Really? Shame on you. You guys should find that. that. C.S. <laughs> Lewis and Tolkien had this idea that, that beneath every good story is the basic story of the Bible. That the reason that we resonate with good stories it's because there is a true story, or he actually called it the true myth, that underlies every other myth. And that when you are captured in a story, you actually are connecting to something that is intuitive at a level, at a deep level, connected to who you were made to be, at a level that goes beneath even your cognitive level. They had this very kind of precisely worked out idea about myths and about stories that led them to write stories that would capture the hearts and shape the worldview. I mean, imagine this. You know, Tolkien managed to make, for millions and millions of Americans, the idea of a king, not an abhorrent idea, but a beautiful idea. I don't know if, you, I, I don't know if it comes out as well in the movie, but I remember the last time I read The Lord of the Rings on a plane back from England and getting to the point where Ar Aragorn is finally crowned and just weeping uncontrollably, sitting in the middle of, you know, people had no idea who I was, what in the world was going on, but I couldn't help it. I mean, the idea that the king is the one who bears the sword that was broken but has now been reforged and he will defeat evil and he also has the hands of the healer and this is how you know him, you long for a king like that because that's what you were made for. That's who Jesus is, right? So stories are important. Don't downplay their importance. So what about the story that leads up to this point? A couple key points I want us to, to hit on and to notice. Again, the Ten Commandments are not the beginning of the story. This is, this is Exodus here, not Genesis. And what's happened to get us up to this point? Well, really briefly, God created all things by the word of his power. He spoke creation into being. It's really interesting even... You know, it's so fascinating, uh, you know, to read, you know, things about the Big Bang. And, the, you know, I get Time Magazine leading their cover story last week about, you know, light being the first thing and everything comes from light. It's so fascinating. Um, but the Bible says that God created all things and that he created Adam and Eve. He created mankind in his image to be in relationship with him and also to be connected and to rule in his place over the creation. And yet Adam and Eve rebelled against that. They looked at the tree that God had said, do not eat. God had said, obey my word. And the focal point of your obedience, whether you will trust what looks good to you or whether you will trust my word for your ultimate definition of reality and what you should be about, 
they, they said, no, it looks good to the eye and, and good for, pleasing to the eye and good for food, so we'll eat it. And really what, it's not that the fact that they ate it, it's the fact that they turned against God's word, but even before that, they doubted his goodness. They doubted his goodness. They, they imagined God to be something less than he really was. He was a good God, and they fell into thinking that he was holding out on them. It's always like that. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about the first commandment. The reason you break any of the commandments is always because you break the first commandment first. You imagine God to be something less than he is, and it justifies taking matters into your own hands. So it was for Adam and Eve. But the story doesn't end there, and that's a really remarkable thing. We take it for granted, but the Bible should have ended with Genesis chapter 3. And yet, it goes on. And yet, the fact is, the effect of that rebellion against God has huge effects. And, and they come into being real, really right away. Murder enters into the world. And then in Genesis chapter 5, two chapters after the fall, it's called the death chapter because it goes, so-and-so lived so many years and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years and then he died. So, on and on and on, except Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. One little glimmering bit of hope that death may not be the only end, but just a hint of it, Right? And, and there's this story, and it goes on, and it goes on, and God finally calls a man, Abraham, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees. He, Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham didn't want to have anything to do with God, but God calls him out of the blue and, and says, I'm going to reveal myself to you, and I'm going to do a great work through your descendants. And anyway, it goes on and on and on. All of it actually being a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, right when the Bible says that sin came into the world, and God said that you know, all these you know, terrible things have entered into the creation, yet I am going to set enmity, God promises, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the man, which is the first promise of grace and the gospel. Because Adam and Eve had sided with Satan against God, God says, I will not allow those teams to stand. I'm going to break that alliance because I'm a good God, and I am going to ally the seed of the woman and, and against the seed of the of, of Satan, the seed of the serpent, and he will crush his head. And really, the whole rest of the Bible is the story of how God stays faithful to that promise. Do you realize that? That there are all kinds of threats to that promise. There are external enemies who threaten to wipe out Israel, to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah, so that, that promise can never come to fruition. You know, anyway, if I had time, I'd tell you more about that. But, but God is faithful to that promise, Okay. And, the, and God says that, and he wants to connect him to that when he gives these commands. Say, listen, I'm not just a you know, God who's come on the scene just you know, a little while ago. I, God didn't even just start working with these people when he heard them in Egypt. He was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's continuing to pursue these people. The second part of the story that I want us to understand is that these commandments were given in a truly awesome context, experientially. I think a lot of times, you know, you read the words and you forget, you know, that there was smoke and thunder. It says that God's voice spoke. All Israel heard his voice. It was so frightening that they said, God, send Moses up on the mountain. You talk to him. We can't handle it. Now, here's what's amazing about that. At this moment, the people were so freaked out hearing the, verse of, the voice of God shaking, you know, the earth. He could have commanded them to do anything, and they would have done it. But God is not like the gods of the Canaanites. God is not like the Baals. 
All these other gods in the ancient world said things like, kill your firstborn, and then maybe I'll bless you with rain. Cut yourself with knives, and maybe I'll bless you with children. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't do that. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob actually is the one who cuts himself so that he won't forget us. Do you know that the, the people that followed Baal used to do this really interesting thing? They would take their knives and they would carve the name of their God into their palms. The constant throbbing as a reminder to them of whose they were. But in Isaiah, God takes that image around and he says, I have, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It's not like with a little marker, like, like some of you, I see you have little, little notes to yourself written on your hand. No, it'd be like taking your knife and carving. And, and, you know, and this is a picture. God wounds himself so that he will never forget us. That, the God of the Bible is so absolutely opposite of the other gods. He doesn't demand that we do jump through all these hoops so that he can have a relationship with us. He starts out saying, I am the Lord your God. Even though you don't deserve to be in a relationship with me, I have not given up on you. Here's how I want you to live as my people. Um, I think it's such a shame when, when so many people's understanding of Christianity that they've gotten, I, I'm afraid to say, from churches and from Christians, is that Christians are, are, are people or that God, they think, here's, here's what I'm trying to say, there are so many people in our culture who have gotten the message from Christians that God is only happy when his people are miserable. Such it should never be. The, the, the gospel is that God wounds himself so that we could be free. It's not that we have to, you know, cut ourselves and, you know, hurt ourselves in some sort of way so that God will take notice of us. That's actually the heart of Baalism. It's not what the gospel's about. Um, so not only that, but here, you know, the particular context that, that God emphasized here is deliverance from bondage. I'm the Lord who brought you out of bondage. And of course, you know, I said last week a little about this. I'll say it again. God did not deliver them out of bondage only to put them back in bondage with these Ten Commandments. He doesn't say to them, wow, glad I delivered you out of Egypt. Now, you know, here I'm really going to put this, this bondage upon you that's going to make you really miserable. And then, you know, the more miserable you are, the more holy you must be. And so, you know, isn't everything going to be wonderful? That's not what this is about. As a matter of fact, the book of James calls the law the perfect law of freedom. And listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, in the future, when your son or daughter asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? This is on your outline if you want to see this. I'm not making this up. In the future, if your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole house, Lord. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. What's God saying? He's saying, in the future, if your children ask you, what's the point of the Ten Commandments? Tell them the story of redemption. I submit to you that I don't think we do that very often. When, when our children, when we teach our children the Ten Commandments, I will tell you through our story Bibles and our children's Sunday school classes, we tell them what they're supposed to do. 
When we put the, the Ten Commandments up in the courtroom walls, it's because we want to tell everybody in our culture what they need to do. But what God says, in the future, when people ask you, what's the point of these stipulations and these decrees? Tell them a story. Don't explain to them in sort of minute detail all the things that they need to be doing. Now, it's important. God certainly tells us things to do. But he says the point of these commandments, the point that you need to communicate to your children, even from their earliest years, is the story of redemption. Isn't that remarkable? And you wonder, where did we lose that? What happened? Again, you know, part of our, our culture squeezes the church, guys into thinking that the most important truths are truths that we can sort of abstract out and turn into nice little, you know, 10 steps on how to have a happy marriage or 10 steps on how to have a, a wonderful church or, or whatever it is, or a happy emotional life, whatever it is. But God says, tell them the story. That's what they need to hear. But the most surprising part of the context is what happens from the deliverance out of Egypt to the point where the Ten Commandments are given. Because the people that get these Ten Commandments are traitors and rebels and ingrates. Again, this is Exodus chapter 20. Do you know what happens before this in the book of Exodus? God's people, you know, Moses comes to them to deliver them. They don't even want to be free. They continue. It's not just that Pharaoh won't let God's people go. Israel says, Moses, knock it off. You're making it worse. We don't want to be free. Finally, they are set free, and they're happy about that, and they do a little dance for three days, sing some songs, have a big celebration, and then they start complaining about the water. So God gives them water. A month and a half later, they're complaining about the food. So then God gives them manna, bread from heaven. Then they get really upset about the water again, and they want to kill Moses. They say, you know, God has brought us out here to die. Wasn't it enough? He could have left us in Egypt to die. Why do you have to bring us out here into the desert to die? Over and over and over again. And to top it all off, while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, do you remember what's going on? You've seen the movie, you know. They're making the golden calf. I, I mean, listen to some of these verses. Listen to some of these I put down here. They said to Moses, this is Exodus 14, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? I don't know if any of you ever read some of the narratives after the Civil War. Um, they did a lot of interviews with slaves, and it was fascinating, and would be really shocking if you've never read these, how many of the slaves wanted to go back into slavery. It's difficult to live in freedom. Now, it's hard for us to imagine if we didn't have authentic interviews and, and testimonies from some of these folks, you would never believe it. And yet, we should believe it because we have the Bible, which tells us that living in freedom is actually really frightening. And sometimes it's a lot easier to sort of live in the misery you know than to sort of be open to something that you may not really be able to control or you may not really know how it will turn out. They were, they said, didn't we tell you in Egypt, leave us here, let us serve the Egyptians. I know it's miserable, but it's a misery we know. We don't know where you're leading us. That last hymn that we sang, I love, Martin Luther had a saying that that, that hymn, I think, picks up on. Um, he used to say, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. That's our help. Uh, again, um, Deuteronomy you know, 9, Moses says, you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. 
and yet God delivers them. I mean, that's the remarkable thing. He says this and still delivers them. And finally, Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountains, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with, with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. How could they do that? Well, if you know your heart, you know. It's amazing how often we go back to the slavery that God has re redeemed us from, time and time again. Again, these commandments are given to these people. The reason these commandments are given to you know, rebellious murderers and thieves and adulterers is to drive them to Jesus. Again, God is committed to redeeming them, not just from Egypt. You may read the story and think Egypt is their big problem. Egypt is not their big problem. Their big problem is their unbelief. And the reason I know that is because where the story goes from here. Where the story goes from here is, is basically, listen to this. Do you know how long it took Israel to go from Mount Sinai, where the giving of the Ten Commandments happened, to the threshold of the Promised Land, where they were on the verge of crossing over to the Promised Land. Do you know how long? Well, if you look at my little outline, you see, 11 days. 11 days from Mount Sinai to the threshold of the Promised Land. But they didn't enter the Promised Land after 11 days. They whined and they complained. And so God sent them back into the desert for how long? 40 years. And if you want to know why, God tells us. He tells us. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you know, I'm here, point three, second bullet point is the scripture. Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. In other words, it was a remarkable thing. It was a miraculous thing. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines or trains, it's the same word in the Hebrew, um, disciplines or trains his son, so the Lord your God disciplines or trains you. God spends 40 years training Israel to live by faith and to live as a community. You see, here's what happens. You know, um, as soon as they, as soon as they, you know, kind of start start uh, out from Mount Sinai. Do you remember what happens? Moses pretty soon is spending day and night solving disagreements and fights between the Israelites, and his father-in-law Jethro comes and says, Moses, you're spending all your time solving squabbles and fights among these people. Let's set up a system where we'll have, you know, different elders. And, and he sets up this whole remarkable organizational system where Moses won't have to deal with all this stuff himself personally. There'll be sort of like different tiers, right? But here's the point. The fact that he had to set up an organization like that means that these people have no idea how to live in community. I, I, was, I was reading a book by Eugene Peterson, the guy that translated the message, and he says, you know, salvation is actually a pretty easy thing. When you think about what Israel had to do to be saved out of Egypt, they basically 
cooked a meal, ate it, and then they walked out of slavery. That's what they did. They cooked a meal, they ate it, and they walked out of slavery. And they got to an impassable sea with the Egyptian army breathing down their necks. They wondered what they would do, and Moses splits the water. They cross over on dry land. They get to the other side, see the army following them, and Moses you know, speaks another word, and boom, it covers them up. They didn't do anything. They stood back and watched. Salvation stories are always like that, actually. But, but he goes, this is the way Peterson puts it. It's so great. He says, salvation is really pretty easy. But community is difficult. Damnably difficult. Forty years trying to teach these people how to live in community. And finally, at the end of the story, at the end of Moses' life, and this is kind of setting us up for where we go next week. Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses gives the Ten Commandments again. It's his last sermon. As they're about to enter into the Promised Land, he says, you need these words if you would hope to live in community. If you would hope to be a countercultural community, demonstrating to the Canaanite nations that there is another way to live, that there is a God in heaven who doesn't call you to sacrifice your firstborn so that maybe he'll bless you with rain. There's another way to live because there is a true God in heaven. And this is what he's like. If you want your lives to demonstrate that to the watching world, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to live. And he gives them the Ten Commandments once again. That's the context we're looking at this fall. As we look about the Ten Commandments, how do the Ten Commandments help people who are clueless about the gospel and are clueless about living in community begin to be formed into a countercultural community that can demonstrate to the watching world that there's another way to live because there's a God in heaven. Don't you want to be part of that? Never has the need been more desperate for a community that can demonstrate to the world that there's another way to live. A couple concluding applications. Again, I don't want to harp on this, but I can't harp on it enough. Don't disconnect the commandments from the story. God included the prologue for a reason, Deuteronomy 6. Again, if your kids ask you what this is about, if your friends ask you what the Ten Commandments are about, tell them the story. Do you know the story? Can you tell the story? You know, if you fail to do that, then the way, what your kids, or maybe what a lot of you have experienced, is these commandments are just a way for my parents to exercise power over me. And if you fail to communicate that in your culture, then people you know, experience Christians as people who are just trying to exercise power and authority over people who don't agree with them. That's why the Ten Commandments have become such a flashpoint in the culture wars. Because Christians are not telling the story, they're trying to use the Ten Commandments as a club to exercise power and authority over other people. God didn't intend it for, to be that way. He says, tell them the story. When Christians need to say loud and clear is that the Bible never issues bare commands. Maybe you need to look, look it up yourself and find that that's true. That's a pretty bold statement, I know. But I'm willing to stand by it. The, the, the Bible always roots its commandments in something about God, what he's done, who he is, who we are. It's always rooted in something. Because Christianity, represented as bare commands or as Christian values, Disconnected from the rich story of a relentless pursuing God who loves rebels and fools is not Christianity. Christian values disconnected from the story are not Christianity. They're an empty shell that has no power. And the world doesn't need any more of that. We don't want to be part of that. 
Finally, the pressing issue of our time, Robert Weber, guy that I respect a lot of his writing, says the pressing, pressing issue of our time is who, sorry, typo, bad typo, is who gets to narrate the world. In other words, there are a lot of competing stories out there in the world. Whose story, whose story gets to narrate the world? But even more personally for you, who narrates your story? In other words, it's the pressing issue for your life and heart. The guy Dan Allender has written a lot of helpful books on counseling, has this idea of the story war. Do you realize that every one of you has had lots of stories told to you, about you, by your parents, by your teachers, by a coach, mentors, friends, enemies? Stories about who you are and why you matter. Advertising, movies, music, all these stories. But God is telling a story as well. And do you realize, at your heart of hearts, there's this profound war between stories going on. Which story will define you? Will it be the story that says, for you to get God to like you, you have to do this, 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 and this, and if you do it just right and you keep it up long enough, then maybe he'll bless you? Is that the story that defines you? Is it the story that defines you, I've got to do everything just perfect, or I'm a piece of crap? Is the story that defines you, I have to make it in music, I have to use my gifts, I have to self-actualize all that I've you know, been given? There are all these stories that seek to define us and seek to enslave us. The gospel is the only story that's a story of real freedom. Because it's a story, it's a story of God who takes on the bondage. Jesus himself, you see, like I said last week, he lived these Ten Commandments. And yet he took on bondage. He took on the suffering that those who break the commandments deserve so that all of us who've broken the commandments can actually live lives of freedom. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about. What is this freedom that should, should and how does, it, how does it flush itself out um, in community? That's what we dig into next week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the story. We thank you, God, that you're committed to foolish, sinful people. Lord, we don't thank you enough. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue in our study of the Ten Commandments, that we would grow so much more grateful for the story and also so much more wise in, in understanding how, how are we to live? What did you make us for? What are you committed to making us into? And may, Lord, you help us, give us faith to follow you, even when, even when it goes against the stories that we've heard and the stories we've believed. Lord, may your story define us. May it set the path for our feet. You say your word is a light. May it be a light for us to light our path. We pray this in Jesus' name.